cut hair for the kids. I've cut my own hair this week. There was a time a few days ago where, uh, where Paula couldn't get her hair washed, so we're both in our PJs. Her head is over underneath the faucet. I'm standing in my PJs in the bathtub trying to figure out how to get all this shampoo into all of that hair. And so uh, I can honestly say I have fresh empathy for all the ladies, for uh, Micah Ross as well. Um, so uh, anyway, keep praying. She's supposed to be better in a few weeks. And um, anyway, I think she's kind of enjoying it now because uh, all kinds of interesting tasks are going on around the house. So I want to welcome all of you. We are still in our Incarnate series and are going to be wrapping it up here soon. This is probably the last night that I'll have a message for y'all. The plan is tentatively next month we'll get back together and we'll, uh, we'll sit up here, just a few of us, a few pivot leaders, and have an open conversation, kind of a panel discussion about the issues that we've covered here, and, um, and then maybe open up for Q&A and have a, a conversation back and forth on what does it look like to put all this on the ground, to talk about mission and the challenges of that. So um, tonight, we're, I want to I talk about a biblical worldview and the importance of bringing a biblical worldview into this process of evangelism, into this mission of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us, with non-Christian friends. So I think it's a critical piece. It's a piece that's been missing all along in our discussion so far. But hopefully you'll see this connection, that there's a needed emphasis on biblical worldview, particularly in the culture in which we live. Uh, But before we get too far into that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Thank you that we share one heart, one mission. And Lord, those of us who have put our trust in the Savior that you have provided, Lord, we share a depth of friendship, Lord, that we could never experience. Lord, we're united by the death of the one and only Son that you've provided for us. And so we have every reason to be unified in heart, in attitude, in mind. We have every reason to go out into the world with joy and with enthusiasm and eagerness to share this good news that you've given to us. So advance that mission by impacting our hearts with the truth of your word tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a in the postmodern world of blur, and that presents some significant challenges for us to do mission together for the cause of the gospel. And part of that is because the primary use, uh, terms that we have that are the currency of sharing the gospel message, right? Terms like God, Jesus, sin, evil, uh, the cross, truth. All those terms are up for grabs in a postmodern, pluralistic society. Those terms are becoming very, very blurry terms. So that when we use that term, it doesn't necessarily mean what it meant 25 years ago. Not everybody who hears those words has the Judeo-Christian worldview that is assumed when we just say that. So I think that's why it makes it necessary and incumbent on us to really be missionaries in our society. I heard D.A. Carson, who's been doing missions work on campuses in a number of different places over the past 30 years or so. D.A. Carson said, when I did mission weeks at a university, whether it was Stanford or UC Berkeley or wherever in the United States, he said, when I would interact with an atheist 25 years ago, he said, at least it was a Christian atheist. He said, in other words, the God that he disbelieved in was the Christian God. So when I said God, he knew what I meant by that. So we were at least on the same turf in lingo, in background. When I talked about right and wrong, he assumed and believed that there was such a thing as an objective right and wrong. Now, do we have that? We don't. If we do in our particular niche here in New Orleans then that niche is an anomaly in the broader culture which has been rapidly influenced by 
postmodernism and its fuzzy definitions of reality, truth, understanding, everything that is the currency of Christian mission. So this becomes very, very important. We need to make the gospel understandable to people who might otherwise absorb it into their pre-existing secular worldview, their pre-existing pagan worldview, or culturally religious worldview. So one of the tools that we're going to talk about tonight that we have in clarifying the gospel message is to impress upon people that we're talking to a biblical worldview. And that biblical worldview emerges from the storyline of the Bible. Four, four parts, four chapters, if you will, to the storyline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And everything in the Christian worldview and Christian understanding can flow out of that understanding, out of that movement of what's the whole storyline of the Bible about. When you read your Bible, it's pretty easy, isn't it? And in our culture, when you talk about the Bible, for people to have the idea that the Bible is a collection of unrelated uh, prophecies about this area or that area, unrelated historical figures, this or that king, this or that judge who ruled in this or that place. And that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on what's written in Hebrews. And that doesn't have necessarily any bearing on the poetry of Psalms or on the wisdom sayings of Proverbs. And so there's just this kind of disconnected messages. And you get lost in the details of the Old Testament. And biblically speaking, from Jesus' perspective, everything in the Bible is about one thing. All the small stories of the Old Testament are telling one big story. They're all pointing to a bigger story. That's, uh, theologians call that the meta-narrative. So over all the individual small narratives of the Old Testament, there is this movement, this momentum, momentum building toward redemptive history. And all of that is moving toward a Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament, Jesus said, it was all about me. Turn to Luke chapter 24, if you will. Luke 24, verses 20, we'll start in 25. This is Jesus, just after his resurrection, he's interacting with his his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't know that he's there yet, but uh, he draws near, enters into this conversation, and then he kind of pulls off his, his Groucho Marx, and he's standing there telling them who he is and explaining the truth. And he says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe... All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, haven't you read your Bibles? If you had read the Old Testament, you would have known what all this was about. You would have been expecting this. He goes on. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So he goes all the way back into Genesis through the books of Moses, five books of the Pentateuch. In through all, it says, all of the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This was the most elaborate and wonderful biblical theology seminar ever given in human history. And Jesus himself says, here, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis. That's about me. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus. That's all about me. Turn to Leviticus. All this stuff, everything, all these sacrificial systems. That's all about me. And then he One after another, he's pointing to these verses and showing how he's the fulfillment of everything, not only in the law of Moses, in the prophetic materials, everything. It's all about him. Advance forward to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So Jesus gave these guys eyes to see that when you read your Old Testament, guys, don't get lost in the stories. Think about this massive movement of redemptive history. God is going to bring his people into his place under his rule. Everything is about that. 
God is going to bring his people into his place under his rule. And so every time when the, when the people disobey God and you have the cycle of the judges, one jerk after another who turns his back on God, one evil king after another, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, and then the people are flung out into exile. And even there when the pro- prophetic writings are coming to God's people, there's that same chorus that you can hear it. That same chorus is coming through. God wants his people to be with him in his place forever, under his rule, in his kingdom. And so that's the movement. Jesus is trying to get them to see that. Now, Paul's message, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 17, you'll see Paul interacting with a group of Athenians. And if you back up a few chapters from there, you see Paul in in chapter 13... And he's, he's in Antioch, and he's talking to Jews. He says, men of Israel, in verse 16. Men of Israel, and he proceeds to talk about Hebrew history and God's relationship to his covenant people and all these things that he can pretty much assume they've got that, right? He's talking to Israelites. You're monotheists. We've got a lot of stuff in common. The one God that you believe in happens to be the one God that I believe in. It's Yahweh. And he's always related to a covenant people. So Paul doesn't have to do all this presuppositional kind of let me assume nothing and go back to ground zero with these people. But in Acts 17, he's talking to Stoics, philosophers. He's talking to guys who stroke their beards in the Areopagus. This is the university of Athens where Paul is. And there can be no assumptions. They have no cultural memory of God's activity with his covenant people in the Old Testament. They got no access to that. So Paul assumes nothing and starts at ground zero. So we're going to learn, I think as we read this and talk a little bit about it, hopefully we're going to learn uh, the ways in which evangelism to be done in a culture like ours, which is a post-Christian culture, a biblically illiterate culture, cannot assume the things we could assume 25 years ago when we were talking to people about the Lord, which none of us were here 25 years ago, some of us. But Paul shows us kind of how it's done here in Acts chapter 17. Follow with me. Verse 16. Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was, while Paul was waiting with him, for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, note, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Now, I guarantee when Paul was evangelizing these guys, he wasn't saying, well, you've got your divinities, and then I've got this other divinity that you haven't heard about. He's a foreign divinity. He's a new divinity. You need to accept him. Paul's message was not that, but somehow... Because they have no presuppositional framework, no understanding of the Judeo-Christian God, no monotheism working in that category, they come away from hearing this and saying he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, to the big house, right, to the places where the philosophers like to hang out and debate, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. (laughs) Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens. Now, listen to the way in which he begins to throw down the gauntlet to cause the gospel to pick a fight with the culture. Paul is going to not assume anything, and he's going to bring them all the way back in historical setting to God's existence, attributes of God, and a number of things that call into question their philosophical views, their religious views. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, at this point, all he's doing, he's not commending them for being religious. He's just saying, he's just making an observation. You're very spiritual people. We live in a culture much like that. We have a very spiritual culture. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, 
to the unknown God. So that the Athenians had so many gods in their pantheon, in their group of gods, and these gods all had their particular domains. And the Athenians wanted to make sure they covered themselves and didn't displease any of the gods, so they established an altar for an unknown god. In case we missed any of them, let's just establish this one big memorial to the unknown god so everything else can get covered by this. Paul points that out. And he says, I see this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is saying, God is knowable. That wasn't an assumption in the culture to which he was speaking. That's not an assumption in postmodern culture either. Paul is pressing on that. God is knowable. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand. So this is a God who is transcendent. This is a God who is distinct from creation, right? These are, this is a Christian worldview coming at them. God and creation are not one. This is not pantheism. God is distinct from creation. There are two categories in the world. There is a creator who is in a category all by himself, and there is creation, and that's everything else. So... Paul is saying there are two categories. God is by himself. God is not dependent upon people. God does not need his creation. So he says that in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is pressing all over their worldview in this moment by saying God didn't create automatically he didn't create because he needed anything, because he was lonely in the heavens and he needed people, he needed some noise in the house, right? My kids and my wife were at kids camp this week and I'm at the house and it was deadly quiet, not a sound in the house. And I'm right there, I'm studying for the pivot message and my dog is next to me. We were there for 12 hours just sitting. I'm sitting in one chair, she's sitting in the other chair. And she was the most depressed dog you've ever seen. And uh, so anyway, we, we're sitting there just realizing, and I'm thinking, I, I would kill for sibling rivalry at this moment. Like even if the kids were just arguing, fighting, fussing, planes buzzing, I can't even concentrate. I'm used to planes buzzing around me. And so this is not how God creates. God doesn't create because he needs activity. I'm just, I'm, I'm bored Uh, God creates out of benevolence. God creates out of abundance, not out of need. There's a spillover of the joy of God, and so he wants to give himself to a people, so he creates, and Paul is saying that. And God, and Paul is also saying God can't be domesticated by religious practices. You can't squeeze blessings out of God by offering your sacrifices at all the right times. He's saying, no, God is not like that. He made everything. He made you. He needs nothing. He's totally self-sufficient. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God is not only sovereign over all things, but, but God has made all people from a common ancestry. So you can't look down on somebody else. God has made us all in his image, bearing equal value and dignity before God. Paul is pressing on that. And he's not finished. He's done this so that, verse 27, they should seek God. Why do we have to seek God? Because we've been alienated from God. Our sins have alienated us from God. So there is a need for man to seek after God. And then he talks about God not just being this transcendent mystical being out there somewhere that you can't know. God is not only personal and he's not only transcendent, He's not only sovereign, he's imminent, he's here, he's close. Seek him. He says that. They should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. And remember back in verse 16? He's in Athens. His spirit is provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols. 
Paul's attacking the idolatry in this verse. That the divine being is, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. All of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here again, the Greek view is that history was cyclical. Everything just kept going round and round and round. Eastern religions kind of have that same idea. Paul is saying, no, history is linear. It's going somewhere. There is a terminal point where the curtain comes down as we know it, and God comes to judge all people, and he commands all people to repent. So Paul is pushing the envelope in all these categories. You know, uh, we did an alpha at Loyola a couple of years ago, and uh, the longer we went, week after week, uh, the more, in one sense, I was encouraged because we weren't having people throw fits and get into arguments and get upset. I mean, there would be a teaching, we'd watch a video and then we'd discuss it. And there would be a teaching on truth and a teaching on the church and a teaching on prayer and a teaching on the cross and a teaching on all these different topics and subjects. And nobody had any problems. The resurrection. And here I'm doing all this homework and stuff during the day to get ready and get all my apologetics guns loaded. And I show up and everybody listens and says, yeah, sure, that's good. The the postmodern system is big enough to absorb so much of Christian thought without being challenged, without seeing that that runs right against you. It runs straight into your worldview. And they said, no, I actually, actually, no, that works fine for us. Until we talked about evil. And when we talked about evil, it was very interesting because it was about week seven or week eight. And suddenly, people had major differences with what we were talking about. Because we, we were talking about systemic structures of evil and totalitarian governments and oppression and brutality and racism and all those kinds of out there evils, right? And then we said that those are, those happen because there's inside evil in every one of our hearts. There is right and wrong and we are all alienated from God because of the wrong and the evil that's in our own hearts. And then the brakes came on strong because this challenged the worldview. Whereas everything up to that point, you say, Jesus died and rose again. And they say, great. I don't doubt that. You say, he died to save us from sin. They say, that's great. Corporate greed, human oppression, the neglect of our environment, rapists, murders, and, and, and narrow-minded people need to be saved from sin. Right? That fits into our system. Great. He calls us to the community of the church. I get together with two spiritual friends every Sunday at Starbucks, and I'm always inspired when I leave. Right? That's, it fits into that larger postmodern system. Great, prayers talking to God. I love talking to God. And, and when I sit in this posture and I look at crystals from this angle, it gets even better. It, wait, no, that's not what we said, but that's how it fits. I can absorb that into my system. I got a big enough system to fit all that. Great, my works don't save me. God made me the way that I am. And any sense of guilt that I have is only subjective feelings of guilt. It's not an actual problem that I have. I'm not actually accountable to some higher being who's looking down injustice on my actions. It's not that. So it's not by works. Great. Jesus' death showed us God's love. Because when I work in the soup kitchens and people curse me out when I'm feeding them, I'm feeding them and they curse me out. I need to remember, Jesus did this for people. And the Christian faith and all of the currency of the gospel that we had just used to explain things to people ended up being absorbed right into their system without leaving them with any challenges because we never, we assumed everything. We assumed that their worldview fit a Judeo-Christian worldview and it didn't, it doesn't anymore. When we talked about evil and personal sin, we struck a chord because we said that there is such a thing as objective right and wrong. We said that outside evil is real. 
but so is inside re- evil. And, and that the problem of evil is real, but you're inside the problem of evil, not outside the problem of evil. Therefore, if you look at the problem of evil and you see it as outside of you and you say, God, judge the evil, you're going down with it because you're inside the problem of evil. You're not outside a spectator watching it, keeping measurements, grading the world. It's not only George Bush that's going to take the fall if God judges evil. It's you and me and everybody else. And that's the challenge to our culture. Our generation can come away from Christian topical presentations holding on to a few ideas that blend nicely with their personal spiritual pilgrimage and their journey. Listen to these kinds of things that can be hijacked, right? These are things that are apart often when we talk to unbelievers and non-Christians. We talk these kinds of things, and they can come away thinking, yeah, I grasp that. That works for me. What? Faith is mysterious. uh, Knowledge and doctrine puffs up. That just divides people. Let's just live in the way of Jesus together. What would Jesus do? Social concern is the way of Jesus, right? You really want to change the world? Um, don't go tell people they need to get saved. Build a well. Um, establish an orphanage, right? Good and legitimate things that Christians need to be doing, but the accent is away from conversion, away from repentance and faith towards social action. Jesus wasn't religious. It's not about do's and don'ts, just relationship. Love covers a multitude of sins. God is love. We can all be a part of God's kingdom project. Even Jesus is the only savior. All those things, they don't necessarily penetrate the culture. They've got a way to fit all of that in, even Jesus is being the only savior. Because, you know, yes, I believe everybody, you'd find Christian postmodernists, right? Christian postmodern authors who would write and say, Jesus is the only way. And, and salvation through his death on the cross is the only means by which we can be reconciled to God. However, Jesus' blood covers the sins of the world in such a way that people can make it to God through Buddha or through Eastern mystical religion, whatever. I mean, whatever means gets you there, it was Jesus' death that ultimately accomplished it. But there are many paths that still get you there. These are the challenges of the culture that we're living in. We need to be aware of that as we seek to incarnate the gospel. So there's a sense in which when Paul speaks to the Athenians, he's speaking to postmoderns. If we go back to Genesis and we start and we just listen to the story of the Bible, we find out there is one God. And he is, he is triune so that there are three persons in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, three persons in the one God, and he's uncreated, and he's not dependent on the creation, and he's sovereign and loving and just and holy and pure. And he made everything. He made the heavens and the earth. He made us, male and female, in his own own image, so that we bear his stamp. Every single person on the planet bears the stamp of the image of God. You don't get that when you become a Christian. You get it when you're born. Bear the image of God. That's why a Christian worldview says we can't oppress anyone because we would be oppressing the image of God himself in another human being. Our worldview gives us the resources for that kind of belief. So God has made all of us in his image. He is distinct from creation. We were made to love and worship and obey and enjoy God, but we turn from him. That's fall. That's the second chapter, creation, fall. We turned and we, we made a grab for godness. We de-godded God in the garden and humanity fell and everything in creation felt the tremors of that fall in Genesis. Everything was affected. Entropy started happening and decay and death spread to all corners of the globe. All people were affected by it. Creation itself toppled and began to recoil under the curse of God because we had rejected him, thrown off his sovereignty. 
and fallen away and rebelled. This was no misdemeanor. It was cosmic treason. It was the enthronement of ourselves over against God, and God was angry. God is angry with sin. God is pure, and he's holy, and he's just. And so what's he going to do? If if he is immutably just, God never changes, then what is God going to do with the fact that we've just spit in his face, flouted his law? Ignore that? Sweep it under the rug? It's cosmic treason. There's no greater sin in the world than to slight the glory of God. So what's God going to do? He comes. He comes in his son, the second person of the Trinity, the second Adam. There's a new representative for the human race. And, Adam, and he comes, Jesus comes to redeem us. And there he is, incarnate, in the manger, born of a virgin in a small town. And he's in the manger, fully God, fully man, fully man. He's got real bones, a real human brain, real nervous systems, real synapses firing, real blood, human blood running through his veins. He's getting his, his motor skills together. He's thumbing himself in the eye. That's, that's Jesus. He's fully man and he's fully God. He's upholding the molecules of the manger the molecules of the oxen, the molecules of his mother, the molecules of the universe by the word of his power from the manger. Fully man, fully God. And this second Adam comes, unlike the first Adam who was only a man and substituted himself for God. He comes as God and substitutes himself for man and he takes on the sin of the world and he goes to the cross and he absorbs the full impact of the penalty, the just penalty of the wrath of God on sin. Every person who would ever look to him and trust in him for salvation would have their sins completely covered. My sins, past, present, and future were completely dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what he came for. That was his mission. After he was confirmed to be dead, he was buried. And on the third day, he rose victorious over sin, death, Satan, demons, hell. And then he commissions his followers to go and incarnate this message and carry this good news, this gospel, to every creature in every nation on the planet and tell them I've come to save and invite them to the feast and call out to them as we looked last last month and say, be reconciled to God and God will be reaching through you. And so he commands, as we saw in Acts 17, he commands all people everywhere to repent, to come to him, to embrace him as the only Lord and Savior. And then he ascends. Having risen from the dead, he ascends into heaven and took his seat on the throne of preeminence where he reigns as the sovereign king of the universe. This is the biblical story. This is reality. And though though not every eye sees it right now to be the case, he rules over all. All nations all peoples, all ideologies, plant kingdom, animal kingdom, oceans, rivers, angels, demons, everything is subjected to the preeminent Lord of the universe and there's not a maverick molecule in the entire universe that's not at his beck and call. He causes kings to rise and fall at his will, at his pleasure. He is sovereign. He is in control. And in the most reverence charged moment in world history, this sovereign king is coming again. And his coming will shake the earth and the heavens and hell. And the mountains will melt like wax before him. And those who have rejected him and slighted him 
and patronized him will call for the mountains to fall on them because he comes, his robe is dipped in blood, he's got on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, he's coming and speaking like he owns the place. And he's not a meek and mild, lowly Jesus anymore. He is the king of the world. And it says his eyes are like fire and out of his mouth is a two-edged sword with which he will smite the nations. This is our king. This is the terminal moment of history. And those who have lived for themselves for the passing pleasures of this world, who have ignored or belittled him, will be cast into hell where they will exalt the justice of God. And those who have fled to him for refuge will sing of his mercies with countless millions before his throne forever. And creation itself will be freed from its bondage to decay and ruin. And this creation that had been standing on its tiptoes since Genesis 3, waiting for this moment, will be completely cut loose and released into the beauty of God's order and his design. And the trees of the field will clap their hands and the mountains will skip like newborn calves. These are the things you pick up in the prophetic writings. That's been pointed to for thousands of years. This is not a new story. And what began in a lavish garden in the country, in Eden, will end in a celestial city whose builder and maker is God. And we will know everlasting peace and unbroken joy and perfect fellowship. No rivalry, no jealousy, no mind games. All we will do is stand in the presence of God, feast at his table, enjoy him forever, and enjoy each other forever. That's the biblical story. That is our message for this culture. They gotta hear that. We have to connect that story to their story. I think you won't be able to do that effectively if you don't connect that story to your story. So I wanna talk practically here for just a moment about how do we pursue evangelistic discernment. Talking about leveraging a biblical worldview. Why is it that a biblical worldview serves evangelism in a postmodern, post-Christian culture? Well, the storyline of the Bible is what gives us the substance of a Christian worldview. I've said that already, but I want to try to connect this biblical worldview, this biblical story that I just told, to the incarnate mission for two reasons. One, is we live in a culture, again, that's ignorant of the Bible. So if we just use our biblical Christian theological language, they won't get it. I mean, if we're, if we're walking up to people and we're saying, do you, wretch, trust in the atoning work of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for your sins? Or if we say, do you feel his irresistible grace drawing you to repent in sackcloth and ashes and take hold of the horns of the altar and (laughs) pound upon your bosom and say, have mercy on me, poor sinner. That's not language they're familiar with, right? That's, that's, we can get that stuff from Bible in various places, but that's not language they're familiar with. So we can throw Christian terms and that just flies right past them. We need this biblical worldview. Now, we need to know the theology. We need to know the biblical material, the biblical language. That's why last month I spent the whole message talking about that, double imputation and all of that. We need to know it. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two is to make that biblical message intelligible to people who don't have a Judeo-Christian worldview behind them, a biblical worldview behind them. So we have to connect the story into their lives so that the gospel is clear. Look at this quote from D.A. Carson He's talking about missions, and he says, the policy with New Tribe's mission during the last 15 years has been that when they move into areas where there has been no previous knowledge of the gospel, they start by retelling the Bible's whole storyline. This is considered to be the most effective way of communicating the gospel to people of a different worldview. So number one, we need to do this. We need to connect the biblical worldview to evangelism because the 
culture is ignorant of the Bible. Number two is because if we listen to people's stories, there are incredible opportunities if we just listen well. You know, we live, I mean, there's never been a culture that's not into stories, but postmodern culture bills itself as we love stories. That's why they love uh, postmodern Christians who are trying to blend postmodernism and Christian faith, love the narratives. They love the parables. They're not fans of the epistles of, of Romans and Galatians and things like that. But parables they love. They love stories. We have this opportunity to connect to people's stories, the biblical storylines. I, I kind of think of evangelism in this way as uh, we've all seen pole vaulters. As you're running just through life, you're just running with this pole. And this pole is just bending as you run. But you're looking for an opportunity to leverage that, to get up into a conversation so that you can Say something about the truth of God's word, even if you don't have 20 minutes to open your Bible and turn to this passage with me. If it's not, if it's not that, we're just looking for a hole. We're looking for something to give me some, some leverage, right? And sometimes you just try it anyway. You don't really see a hole or any leverage, but you just stick the thing in the ground and hope it doesn't slip, right? Sometimes we do that, but I think a biblical worldview will help us look for those holes. And there are three ways I want to talk about briefly that we can see opportunities appear before us. One is discern their pain. Discern their pain. Asking this question, where is this guy, where is this girl in touch with the brokenness of the world? I was in a conversation just recently and uh, the lady was quite angry. She was very cynical about the Bible and uh, she said, at one point in the conversation, I feel like there was a time in my life where I knew peace and I was a happier person. But now, she said, I can't sleep at night. I, I, I have these constant thoughts uh, about religion and ideas. And as soon as some idea that comes from my Christian upbringing comes into my mind, it comes with skepticism and bitterness and anger. And she says this with tears in her eyes. And up to that point, we're about an hour and a half into the conversation. Up to that point, she had been Teflon. Just no emotional reaction whatsoever to anything. At the very beginning of the conversation, before that moment, she sat down and she said, the Bible is full of contradictions and it does not live in the same world that I live in. It makes no sense of the world that I live in. It's irrelevant. Now, she says that, an hour and a half later, she's in tears. And an, an opportunity opens itself, doesn't it? Because a, a biblical worldview says to a person who's experiencing that and who has felt an inkling of the brokenness of this world, there's bitterness, there are tears there, there's pain, there's sleepless nights, there's fear, there are doubts giving birth to more children, doubts and more doubts and more doubts and more doubts. And it's shutting her world down. Her mind is constantly screaming with energy. And so there's the moment. The hole appears, running with my pole, and there's the hole right there to be able to say to people who say that, not only does the Bible have a powerful accounting for human suffering, such that the Bible, if it's understood by any individual on the planet, any person on the planet, if they understand the message of the Bible, can have the Bible finish their sentences for them. If they're sharing some pain, some struggle, the Bible can finish their sentences for them. That's what I did with this lady, just talking with her, started to quote some passages from the Psalms, and guess what she started doing? Nodding yes. I thought an hour and a half ago you said the Bible's irrelevant for your life, and now the Bible's finishing your biography. It knows exactly where you live. The Bible knows your pain. It knows every pain in the human situation. But not only that, it's, it's the only place where we get real hope. Real hope that do doesn't come through a pill that deals with symptoms. It doesn't come by some kind of metaphysical utopia, mystical encounter, or by just psychologically suppressing and denying the things that we know are going on in our lives. It comes, it comes with the power of hope 
that we know when we are restored to fellowship with the one who made us. And how does that connect to the Bible's storyline? Well, the Bible's storyline says you were made for God. You were made to know God, to enjoy God, not to live on your own, not to live in isolation, to trust God. And so the more you move further and further into skepticism and cynicism with with respect to God and the things that you used to believe about the Bible, the further you're moving into darkness and away from the very joy that you're trying to grasp with all your might. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're sending yourself down the wrong road. God's word connects with your story. Augustine said, Lord, you have so made us that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We can't, we can't even sleep. We can't even rest. Our hearts are constantly bouncing from place to place, from thing to thing. And, and, and Augustine said in, in his struggle, he said, I finally concluded I was made for you. That's what C.S. Lewis says. If we can't find any joy in this world, we must have been made for another world. That's the biblical storyline. You were made for another world. You were made by a God who intended to delight and thrill your soul. And when you go and try to get your soul thrilled elsewhere, he won't let that happen. And it's his grace, pain, trials are God's grace. It's God saying, I'm not going to let you slam your head against the brick wall for the rest of your life. I'm going to make it hurt next time. And then you'll look to me. This is God's grace. He's pursuing us. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a dying world. Second, discern their pain. Also, discern their gospel. Everybody's got a functional heaven, a functional hell, and a functional savior. Everybody. There's nobody that you're bumping into in your life, no friend who doesn't believe in heaven, either the real one or one that he's made up himself. There's nobody in your world that doesn't believe in hell, that doesn't believe in and fear hell, whether it's the real hell or the one they've made up themselves. So lonely hell for some people. Hell to me is that I would have to live the rest of my life without the companionship of marriage. So salvation to me, the essence of salvation, the thing that I would testify until my dying day would be the centerpiece of my testimony would be if I could get a husband or a wife. So hell for that person is loneliness. The greatest hope of their hearts is marriage. And so if that's, if, if heaven is companionship and hell is loneliness, then what's the savior? What savior is that person gonna look to? if their functional hell is loneliness, then the savior they're looking for isn't Jesus Christ, it's Cupid. Right? And there are people all around us who have functional saviors that have other names than Jesus Christ because their functional heaven into which they want to enter and their functional hell, which they want to avoid with all of their heart and strength, is something other than the real hell of the Bible. So we have to realize We're listening to people. There are people who want to avoid poor hell, poverty hell. Maybe they came up in a a household where they never could have anything and all the other kids had the toys and they never had anything. And so poverty is the ultimate hell. Or there's unhealthy hell, right? The new temples today are spas and gyms and cosmetic surgery rooms, that those, those are places where people go to worship in our culture. They go there to worship, not just for a nip and tuck. They're going to worship. <laughs> Listen for that. Some people in our particular generation have married hell. It's not that I, I fear loneliness. It's I fear committing to marriage for the rest of my life. I'd rather anything than that. <laughs> These alternative heavens and hells come with corresponding saviors. And this this puts together one's functional gospel. And I think we can try, what what we're trying to do as we incarnate the gospel message is we're trying to show people that their longings can't ever be satisfied with something other than God. Look at this quote from Timothy Keller. 
talking about relationships kind of being the ultimate thing people are after in this particular case. No human relationship can bear this burden of godhood. People hoping that the companion that they're in relationship with is going to be a functional god for them and answer and bring all the hopes and joys into their life. If your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. And that's what any functional savior will do to you. Remember chariots of fire where the statement's made, I got 10 seconds to justify my existence. It all hangs on the finish line, whether I finish fast enough. We all have this, this thing that ultimately, we may, even as Christians, there are functional moments where we don't believe in justification by faith, we believe in justification by fill in the blank, some other thing. We put it all on that particular pursuit. He goes on to say, to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Remember in, uh, in Rocky, they said, why are you doing this? Why do you want to fight? I don't remember this is Rocky one. Why do you want to fight this guy? And he said, to prove that I'm not a bum. Same idea. He's saying that. To know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, humans cannot give this. Do you think vocation can? You think work, money, health can? We need to help people see that they can't. The famously wealthy uh, John D. Rockefeller was asked the question, how much money is enough? And he quickly said, a little bit more. The idols of our hearts never satisfy. We have to connect our story, people's story, to the big story. Finally, discern your own heart. Have you connected your own story to the big story? I think it goes a long way instead of kind of hurling truth bombs at people, you know, like we're sometimes prone to do. Just kind of lob a verse in their direction, take cover, and just hope maybe something happened besides them getting blown to bits. If we have a self-conscious awareness of the futility of pursuing joy outside of God, I wonder how many of you have that awareness. Genuinely in your heart, you have an awareness You've experienced it. You know. Nothing satisfies me, and I've experienced that. Maybe even as a Christian, and you're thinking about having fun with people and hanging out, or you're dabbling in the world, and you, you get that thought, don't you? We get it in some category or another where we think, yeah, I know I've been doing this for a long time, and Friday nights have been rolling in and rolling out, but this Friday night's different. This is the be-all, end-all Friday night. This is the weekend I was born to have, right? <laughs> and, and, and all of the precedent that we have of 5,200 weekends that went before that is just vanished, and we put it, all of our eggs in the basket of, no, this is going to be the big one. Or a guy who's just going through girlfriend after girlfriend after girlfriend, and he says, well, you know, but the last three girlfriends, it just... It wasn't really there. I mean, I never had that kind of vibe inside. You know, that vibe that you get when something's just right. You know, (laughs) all this vague language. Um, But, you know, I've never felt the way I feel when I'm with new girl. Right? We experience that personally. We go after stuff. As Even as Christians, we turn back and we go to sin. We go to experiences as though they're going to give us the kind of satisfaction that we've only experienced in God. And we're in that moment temporarily deceived, temporarily atheist. And I see this every day when I come home from work. My four-year-old daughter gives me nine seconds. I come in the door. I got nine seconds. I can run to the back wherever Paula is, find her, hug kiss, say hi, how was the day? I got nine seconds before Ellie finds me in the house and she'll, it's, it's a body posture, it's a voice, it's everything, it's the whole package and she just comes, runs, stops, stands straight with her arms at her side, sticks her chin back like this and goes, tickle me! 
and I'm in conversation, I'm already talking about something, right? Okay, yeah, there was really bad traffic. I'm sorry, what's for dinner? Nine seconds. Tickle me! I get it again. And if I don't do it right then, I'll get, I got another nine seconds before I'm going to hear another one. So usually after one or two, I'll just drop her. I mean, I'll hold the back of her head, drop her on the ground, and tickle her until she can't breathe. Like she's not, she's not even laughing out loud. She's just, just dead silent. I'm, I'm tickling the daylights out of this girl. And I stop and I'm like, that would be miserable to be tickled like that. And I stop. And as soon as I'm done, I get back into the conversation. I got nine more seconds. She has got to have another one. So she'll come out with the tickle me. I cannot tickle the, the child enough. Her, her oldest brother is just like that. He loves to be tickled as well. They're, it just looks like such a miserable thing, but they can't get enough of it. It's like, do it one more time, one more. I'll have these, these tickle marathons. And I mean, really, it'll be 20 minutes later and we're still just going out. I'll take a break and then she'll use some word. You know, we create this language and she'll use some word and I'll say, you know what that means in my language? And she'll go, what? And I'll say, tickle and I'll tickle her and then she'll say some other word trying to get me to stop and that says no that means tickle you right here and I'll tickle her right there and she loves it she wants to play it all the time <laughs> and and we're the same way we constantly are going after things and saying to the world tickle me in this category and in that category we just can't get enough of it that's, if we're aware of that, we're in touch with how our storyline connects to the biblical storyline, the, the fall and the self-deception of thinking this is going to satisfy. And not only do we have that in some kind of you know, theoretical chapter or verse, but we felt it. We've, we've known it. We've, we've woken up on, on Monday morning and said, never again, never. Why, why did I do that again? I remember particularly keen and acute struggles in my teenage years with lust. And I remember indulging in lust. And then as soon as I was finished saying never again, I never want to feel this way again. I feel so guilty, so unclean. And I did that so many days one after another after another, that it came to a point where it was almost as though as soon as I said never again, I could hear laughter. See you tomorrow. You'll be back. You'll ask for more. Another image. You'll have to see it again because it never satisfies our hearts, ever. And maybe your thing is you just constantly have to buy stuff, always buying things, and never putting things together, never thinking introspectively about when, when is it going to stop? When am I going to realize this never satisfies me? That I've gone deeper into debt for something I'm already bored with. So many things that dazzle us flash in our eyes and draw us out. And you know what? Those stories that you have, and every one of you has them, even Christians, you can leverage those stories because those stories give you rapport with people. That's where I think this, the appropriate place of authenticity comes in, where we relate to people not as paper saints, but as people who are common in our humanity. We know what it's like. We've felt the pangs of sin and dissatisfaction and futility and frustration and betrayal. We felt all that stuff. We know where they are. We can speak their language. We can finish their sentences too. And when we do that, it gives us rapport with people. I heard Davis Pallison say, I don't have to have been on cocaine or illegal drugs to be able to sit across the table and help somebody. He said, because I've been addicted to things and addiction is, is a principle. There's a principle of addiction. He said, I can talk to anybody in any sin because I've experienced it. I've experienced the principle of addiction to idolatry. Now let me just say, you're going to find that this notion that sin never satisfies isn't believable by some people. 
Some people just don't buy it because, frankly, they are satisfied with sin. They're loving it. The Puritan William Secker said that there are two things that a man can do without God. One is fail miserably, and the other is succeed even more miserably so that we can enjoy rebelling against God day after day after day, not even realizing, not even feeling the pain of it anymore. We've seared our conscience, and now we're just headlong running toward it and not understanding the ramifications of that. There are lots of self-satisfied people out there. We can pray for them. We can care for them. We can befriend them. We can look for opportunities to share the gospel. And sometimes the gospel will just penetrate straight through that stuff. Other times it won't. It's much more challenging to get a flippant non-Christian to reckon with truth because life hasn't knocked the smirk off his face yet. He hasn't lived long enough to feel the pangs of suffering. Incidentally, I think that's one of the great challenges of college ministry is that some of you really still believe you've got life by the tail. You're in control, you're having fun, you're doing your thing, you're flippant, you're casual. You don't realize there's a war going on. So you just kind of gallivant around. And that can make it difficult to pastor because when I start to talk about the need to have our guilt removed by the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't experientially know what I'm talking about. You don't, you don't feel that. You feel pretty, pretty good. I, I'm a pretty good person. So you, having not felt that, or, or if we talk about how there's gonna be a moment where you're gonna have to cling to the sovereignty of God against every fiber in your mind because your mind is gonna say, your world is falling apart, wake up. Your world is falling apart. And when you say God is sovereign, you're gonna hear laughter. (laughs) Yeah, right. You're gonna need that doctrine. Now, some of you, I can say that until I'm blue in the face, but until you lose a child, you'll never feel it. 10 years from now, you're just lollygagging through life. 10 years from now, when life knocks the smirk off your face, you're divorced and you're seeing your children every other weekend. Now you need the gospel. Don't wait for that. Listen, contemplate, go deep in yourself. Go deep. John Piper said this one time. I heard a panel discussion. John Piper was on one side. Mark Driscoll was on the other. Mark Driscoll's a very culturally located pastor. He, he knows the stuff people are reading. He watches the stuff people are watching, and he can just throw those names around and get all kind of cultural rapport with people. John Piper doesn't even own a television. He, he doesn't know half the names that people throw back and forth, artists, musicians, actors. He doesn't know any of that stuff. And the guy said, how do you, Driscoll, maintain your faithfulness and not just dive into the world and lose all your distinction? And how do you, John Piper, you don't even have a TV, how do you even connect with people? They live in a world. They read a newspaper. How do you know what's going on? How do you tap into their lives? And he said, I don't really need a television to know the kind of struggles people have because I have them. I'm a human being. He said, I find that if I'm deep and authentic in my own thought life, my own struggles, and I'm honest with people about that, it connects with them where they are. I think that's what I'm saying here. Discern their pain. Listen for the inklings where they feel that they're living in a fallen world and then, and then go backwards to the bigger problem that they have. Backwards to Genesis 3. That's your big problem. You've rebelled against God who's holy. And then discern their gospel. Where are you hitching your hope? Where you, what do you think is heaven? What do you think is hell? What do you think is a savior? And then discern your own heart so that you can have an honest conversation with them about where they are. Let me just challenge y'all before we go to our meeting next month to look for opportunities and seize opportunities to evangelize this month before the next pivot. If you don't don't say, I'm going to do that in your heart, if you don't say that, guess what? 
you're not going to do it, I can promise you. If you say in your heart, Lord, help me, I'm going to listen. I'm going to look for a hole to appear. I'm going to run with my pole, and I'm going to look for a hole to appear in the ground. And if one appears, I'm going to do my best to relate the Bible story to that person's issue and tell them the hope of Jesus Christ. I'm going to look for a way to do that. And you'll see a window. You'll see something open up this next month. And what I would love, I would absolutely love is if we'd come back, if you would tell us that, if you would email your small group leaders. If you don't have a small group leader, get one. If you're not going to get one, email me and tell us the people that you've evangelized, the opportunities that you've had, failed, blunders, everything. Just tell us. And if we could have some testimonies next month, that would be awesome. Awesome. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for my friends and for their patience tonight. We've we've taken a long time to talk through some of these things. And we want to put it on. Lord, we want to apply the truth. We want to be agents of the gospel, ambassadors for Christ. We don't want to waste our time here. Use us for your glory, God. Give us opportunities over this next month. And not only the opportunity, the ear to, to hear it, the eye to see it, the boldness to seize it. Please, Lord, arm us to be a generation of people who are not indifferent to the state of the souls around us. Give us a passion and a burden for this. Lord, may it be like Jeremiah said, his word to me was like a fire in my bones and I grew weary holding it back so I couldn't. Lord, may people get tired this month and then may they just give in and share it, Lord, and share the gospel. We trust you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.